you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, church. Um, Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 22. So starting at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, or nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. How are we? Good to see you. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, You might have been bewildered, confused by that passage, particularly the second half. Have no fear. We're going to get into it today, and we're going to get straight into it. So we'd love for you to pray with me uh, as we prepare ourselves for the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before you in your word, and we know that when we open the Bible, it is you speaking, so would you speak, and would you, by your spirit, help us listen? Come and do something great in this time that we might be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's his name that all the people said, amen. Well, I thought I would begin today by telling you a story about a woman who uh, once stayed with my grandparents who were ministering in New Zealand. Uh, This woman was born and raised in the Netherlands, uh, born at the end of the 19th century, raised in the early part of the 20th century. And her dad was a watchmaker uh, and she took after the family business and she became uh, a watchmaker as well. And having survived the time of World War I, uh, she entered into the period of World War II, still in the Netherlands, but that was a dangerous part of the world to be in uh, at that point as uh, Germany, led by uh, Hitler, invaded Holland and took over. And courageously, amidst the danger, which was at that point life and death, uh, this woman and her family sought to help Jews who were being rounded up and sent to concentration camps by the Nazis. They would house them uh, in their home. Uh, They worked with the resistance network to provide illegal ration cards so that they could get some food and be fed. Uh, They had an architect come to their home to design a secret wardrobe where they could keep Jewish people safe from the regular visits by the Gestapo. And through her family's efforts, 
it is estimated that some 800 Jewish people were saved who would otherwise have been killed. Eventually, this lady's efforts were found out from a tip-off of an informant. The Nazis arrested her, her sister and her father, a whole household as well, uh, and imprisoned them together in a concentration camp. And at the concentration camp, uh, she was subjected to solitary confinement. Her father would die there. Later, her sister died there as well. And so this woman endured incredible uncertainty, incredible suffering, because she was seeking to do good and to show God's love to those who were made in His image. Twelve days after her sister died, uh, she was inexplicably, through a clerical error, released from the prison camp uh, and found out later that that very week, every woman of her age was sent to die at that concentration camp. So you might have guessed uh, that this woman become very famous, launched a, a writing and speaking ministry off the back of her experiences and off the back of her perspective uh, about what she endured. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. And after her trial, she very famously spoke about how we could uh, see these hard things that we encounter in our lives from God's perspective. And she once famously wrote, God's viewpoint is sometimes different from ours, so different that we could not even guess at it unless he had given us a book which tells us such things. Hey, praise God, we have that same book. And today, we are going to see God's viewpoint on something that is completely different to the ways that you and I have been schooled to think about suffering. Today, uh, Peter is going to transition from the three-week mini-series that we looked at on submission for the last few weeks to talk now about suffering. To talk about suffering. One of the unwritten roles in my job, if you were to look at my job description, uh, some pastors have them, some pastors don't, uh, but one of the unwritten rules uh, or or roles uh, on any job description is to prepare the church, to prepare you to suffer well, to suffer well. Sometimes that suffering uh, occurs because of the the brokenness of the human experience and and life, Uh, cancer, miscarriage, death, grief, Peter's not talking so much about that suffering. He's talking about a different kind of suffering, a suffering at the hands of people who are ambivalent or outright antagonistic towards the faith, towards our trust in Jesus. Now, by way of reminder, Peter is writing at a time where that wasn't state-sanctioned, that there wasn't suffering and persecution at the hands of the state towards those who were Christians, yet that would come. And so at this point in time, the immediate readers of Peter's message were people who were feeling the social pressure, feeling like they needed to conform to the ways of the world instead of this newfound faith that they had in the new resurrected Lord King Jesus. And in our own day, Christians can kind of see our future, particularly our short-term future, quite differently with respect to suffering and persecution. On the one hand, we are very happily, I hope, worshipping in a government building right now, Praise God. Uh, we have a, uh, someone can, can become prime minister while also being someone who worships Jesus publicly. Yet on the other hand, we can also feel pressure. Uh, pressure from media or legislation that might challenge some, some basic Christian doctrine that previously everybody kind of assumed and held dear. Uh, yet now, because of the secular pushback, we can feel as Christians, we can feel embattled. 
And so some Christians become very worried about persecution. Others, not so worried. We can look around the world and see what persecution looks like. There are 340 million Christians right now who woke up this morning, or will in the hours to come, in a a world, in a city, in a state, in a place where it is tremendously dangerous to be a Christian because of the persecution and discrimination they receive for their faith. In the last 12 months, 4,761 Christians have been killed because they're Christians. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings have been attacked. 4,277 believers have been arrested or imprisoned for their faith. And that means today, 12 Christians are going to die because they're Christians somewhere around the world. And so it might feel a little bit distant or a little bit lacking in our own self-awareness for us to just jump on in to talking about persecution, given what it might look like for us compared to what it looks like for others around the world. Yet our context and our fears for the future, or our lack of fears for the future, they don't set the agenda for what we talk about. Instead, we want to let the Bible set the agenda for what we talk about in church. And if we read parts of the New Testament, like the passage today, we know that God wants us to prepare ourselves for this kind of suffering. God wants us to prepare ourselves for this kind of persecution, that we might suffer well for our faith. And so what should we learn? Should the time come where we ourselves will have to walk that road? How can we be equipped now to pray and support for people who right now are walking that road? And how can we prepare ourselves for perhaps the the social pressure that you might feel at the workplace, that you might feel in your universities, in your classrooms, in your sporting teams? Well, Peter is going to help us do that today. He's going to equip us. And so we're going to dive into the text. uh, And in this uh, passage, we're going to split it up into three different sections. The first, we're going to look at Peter's perspective on persecution. And so if you're with me, come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He starts out with a rhetorical question. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And if you were with us last week, you'll know that this isn't kind of coming out of nowhere. This rhetorical question comes from uh, a quote that he read uh, or wrote from the Psalms that we finished with last week. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who are evil. And that leads Peter to this rhetorical question, leads Peter to say, hey, God is with the righteous. God is against those who are evil evil. God's got you. And that leads him in verse 14 to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so we see this conflict in these first couple of verses, because on the one hand, Peter's kind of encouraging us all, hey, you're going to be okay. God's eyes are on you, after all. God is against those who are against you, after all. And then Peter very quickly transitions, but even if you do suffer, you will be blessed. And so which is it? Are we going to suffer or are we not going to suffer? Are we going to be harmed or are we not going to be harmed? And so let's get inside Peter's mind for a moment. He's telling us that harm is different to suffering. He's telling us that you can be suffering and at the same time be blessed. And so notice that Peter's perspective on what he's talking about here is radically different than what you or I might think or have been trained to think about suffering. See, I've been schooled to see any kind of suffering as a curse. 
that the opposite of the blessed life is the suffering life. And I've been schooled that way because, like many of you, I've been brought up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And when you're brought up where we are right now, it is very easy to think that progress in life is anything or or removing anything that limits you or slows you down. Now, I'm the the generation that saw uh, the internet uh, go global, the internet go into the hands of the average consumer. Uh, Some of you might remember what it was like when you were kids uh, and the internet just came out and the process you had to go through to get online. First, you had to check that no one was on the phone. And then you had to get the cord and you plugged it into the wall. And then you turned the 28.8 kilobyte per second modem on and you heard that dial tone. It goes on. And then you logged onto Internet Explorer. And then, if you had to download something, you'd see the window telling you how long it was going to take. (laughs) And sometimes it would say this, 39 years, I still haven't downloaded this yet. It is still coming at 4.61 kilobytes a second. And so that was how my life started. And yet, you know, hopefully this is true for all of us. Over time, we've seen this limitation removed. We've seen progress. And so now when the internet's a little bit slow, I feel like I've earned fast internet. That it's an injustice when I don't get it. I was in the city recently and I saw that in the city now, they've actually, when you cross the road, like just above the button that you normally used to in the past had to press, there's a sign that says you no longer have to press the button. This is our society. These are the problems that our society is solving, the inconveniences our society is solving. You can have Uber Eats or Coles deliver you via drone now your groceries or your meal. And so people like me have been schooled to think that our society is about making things stronger faster, freer. Any inconvenience or problem you come up against, hey, that's just a problem that you might have a $10 billion startup idea to solve. And so in our part of the world, we have an intolerance for inconvenience, let alone a complete allergy to suffering. Suffering and the blessed life do not go together. But here is Peter telling us that we can actually be blessed through suffering. That to suffer is actually no harm at all. This is wild to us. And it's not just Peter saying this. If you know uh, your Bibles, in the Psalms, it says in Psalm 56, In God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? Well, in my view of things, man can do quite a lot to you. Man can make your life very hard. can make you very unhappy. Well, Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, in this part of the world, we might think, well, actually, a lot of people can be against you. A lot of people can make life feel bad for you, give you an awful time. Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is Jesus even talking about here? How could he possibly say that somebody killing you is not the worst thing that could happen? Elsewhere, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so we should actually rejoice when people are out to get us, we're told. So you can see how the, the Bible's perspective on persecution, on suffering like this, is hard to make sense of when you have lived in our neighbourhoods, when you have lived in our part of the world. And so we have a few options before us then, as 21st century, Western, prosperous, upwardly mobile people. One is that we could ignore this conflict and just call it kind of cultural. The Bible's speaking to those people in other parts of the world, and we're going to carry on swimming in our own cultural understanding. Other options, we could destruct, uh, deconstruct the words of the Bible and try to explain away that they're actually somehow in another way not relevant for us. Or we could, and Peter suggested we do this a few weeks ago, conform ourselves to Christ. That, that moment when he said for us to gird up our loins, that we should conform ourselves to the thoughts, loves, priorities of God himself. And there is a blessing in doing so, the Bible tells us, in shifting our priorities toward the priorities of God so that we might love what He loves, know what He knows, prepare for what He wants us to prepare ourselves for. And so how can suffering for doing good, for holding fast to Jesus, how can that be a blessing? Well, there are a few reasons that I think we could talk about, but let me just focus on one this morning. Suffering for Jesus makes us hungry for heaven. Now, I'm going to use an illustration that I've, I've used before uh, for another topic, but it's been tremendously helpful for me when I saw a guy called Francis Chan use this illustration. Uh, I've got a rope here. Can everybody see the rope? It's a rope. Uh, this rope here, I want you to pretend with me that you know, as it goes past the stage where you can't see it, it just goes on forever. It just goes on forever and ever and ever. This rope is infinitely long. And so this rope represents time. This part here with the, the green tape on it, this rope represents your life and mine. This rope with the white part of it as it goes on forever represents eternity. It is going to go on forever. And so everything that you have experienced has happened probably in you know, some early part of this green section. Your birth, your schooling, your relationship, your graduation moment, every moment that, that like, you've cried in despair and every moment you've been absolutely overjoyed it's like a, a tiny little less than a millimeter long section in this green part here on the tape. You know, the way that we are brought up is to make sure that everything in this part of the rope is as comfortable as possible for us. And the way that Peter, and the way that Paul, and the way that the Psalms, and the way that Jesus speak is to make everything in this part of the rope, I hope, Neil, I'm not screwing up your uh, thing here, uh, to make everything in this part of the rope as comfortable as possible. And so even though what we're reading here is completely radical, who's the crazy one when we focus only on what's going on here in the green part of the rope? So when we have a perspective that we need to shift from thinking about just this temporary time in the here and now to thinking about what is going on forever, we can start to make sense of what Peter is saying in that we can actually suffer here and yet be blessed forever. That we might actually be inconvenienced and, and, and put under pressure and even be killed here and yet we can be blessed 
forever and ever and ever. And so Jesus tells us that encountering pressure now, encountering hardship now, being mistreated for your faith now, well, it actually adds to this part of our lives. It adds to the eternal life that we have, making it all the more sweeter. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but in our, our prosperous, uh, kind of financially-minded set of the world, what's the better investment? What's the better perspective to have? It seems quite wise, doesn't it, for, for, for rational-minded people? Well, actually, no. What they're saying makes a lot of sense. That, yes, we should instead think about the rest of the rope. We should instead live in light of the rest of the rope. Now, of course, make no mistake about it, suffering sucks. And the Bible is very clear, and Peter is very clear, and, and Paul is very clear, and, and these guys would go on to, to be martyred for their faith. They know that suffering is hard. Suffering makes us, uh, you know, it hurts. And it makes us, though, yearn for heaven. It makes us hungry for heaven. And so let me encourage you to, to live in light of the rest of the rope. To think in light of the rest of the rope. To give in light of the rest of the rope. To serve in light of the rest of the rope. And Peter wants to encourage us to suffer in light of the rest of the rope. And when you see it like that, well, suffering can be a blessing. So let's move on. Peter is mid-sentence here, and he goes on to tell us how to then respond to persecution. He had said, But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, than it, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so Peter gives us some practical tips for how to, should we be enduring these things, endure suffering. And he gives us three points. Let's talk briefly about all three. Number one, he says that you should honor Christ in your hearts as holy, or in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So think about the moments when you find yourself perhaps under pressure for your faith. Perhaps it, perhaps it doesn't compare to what might be going on in the world right now, but perhaps you find pressure from your boss or your, your manager at work to, to sacrifice church time for work time. Perhaps your friends get a little bit too close to the bone, a little bit too personal in the way that they might dig in to you about your faith whenever that comes up. Perhaps your colleagues might respond to you after hearing of some kind of late, the latest public scandal that gets kind of looped into the faith because they know that you're a Christian and suddenly in the workplace all eyes come on you. You know, in those moments, perhaps our first initial response is to think about those people and we want to be winsome and we want to be uh, people who, who kind of put out, you know, spray water on any, on any potential fires that might come up because of these things. And so we think about the people, you know, what, what, what should I say? How should I approach this? Maybe we just feel awkward and we just say, did someone say KFC? But Peter doesn't first want us to think about the other people. 
He doesn't first want us to think about the, the audience in front of us who might be watching our lives. No, he wants us to think about a different audience. He wants us to respond knowing that Christ is Lord, that Christ as Lord is holy, that we need to be conscious that our first allegiance, our first audience is Jesus, and that we want to honor him in whatever we do next. We want to honor him in whatever way we are called to respond. Because when we see that, we we know he's different. He's pure. He's powerful. He gets the final say. And that leads us to respond. And then Peter says that when we do respond, we need to be prepared to make a defense. Last week we talked about, and I guess for the few weeks preceding that, talked about how the ways that we love and serve and submit and subject ourselves in our relationships actually points the other people to Jesus and the way that he loved and served and subjected himself. But there will come a time where we have to speak. Sometimes we have to speak. Christians are word people, after all. We are people of the book, and we trust in Jesus because of news that we've heard, good news. And that news needs to be told, it needs to be shared, it needs to be spoken. And so Peter wants us to be ready to do so, to speak when we need to speak. You know, when you're, when you're a pastor, uh, you know, I know that I need to be prepared because very early in a conversation of meeting someone, they ask, oh, what do you do? And when I tell them I pass it, immediately that turns the conversation to needing to be prepared for whatever comes next. Sometimes what comes next is them trying to set like a new land speed record for changing the conversation. Other times, people want to hear more. They want to, want to dig in. And so about a month ago, I was playing golf and sometimes it's good to, to play with strangers to kind of see this kind of play out and have these kind of conversations. And as soon as I told these guys what I do, first they kind of flipped their lid and couldn't believe it. And secondly, they had a lot of questions. Questions about alcohol, questions about money, questions about what my kind of working week looks like. Now, perhaps you won't get questions about the faith when you ask, when you tell people what you do, but you will get questions. And those questions will perhaps come most powerfully and prickly when you're under pressure. They'll come when there's some public scandal involving the faith. They'll come especially, Peter's preparing us for, when we actually respond to these things with charity, with love, with goodness, when we seek to do good, when we seek to be godly, that that's when people will ask questions. And so Peter wants us to know what we believe so that we can share what we believe. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. And so think about your own responses in those theoretical moments, or they may not be so theoretical for you. Do you have an answer when someone asks you, or when you have the opportunity to share, what difference Jesus has made in your life? Do you have an answer to the difference between perhaps public perception, kind of religiosity of what the Christian life and message is, versus genuine gospel faith? Could you, could you tease out the difference there in front of people? Do you have an answer to some of the key questions that might come to you in our day and age about the Christian faith, perhaps about why we don't perhaps follow some of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament that often kind of comes up? Do you have an answer to some of these common questions? God wants you to know Him in His Word. God wants you to know Him so well that, that you can speak of Him to others when you 
need to be making an, giving an answer or, or making a defense as people ask you questions for the hope that is in you. And so take up the word. Take and lap it up. Receive it and become someone of the word. And finally, as we give our defense, Peter says that we are to do so with gentleness and respect. And so here's another countercultural point that Peter's making. Because our world is addicted to hot takes and outrage, uh, we live in a world where if you are to give a defense, what would look really cool and perhaps go viral on YouTube if was, would be if you were to own the other person in your defense. If you could just give the, the perfect shutdown answer, you just know that's going to get capitalized in a YouTube title of a video and that's going to get pushed out into the interwebs and 39 years later, someone's going to download that and they're going to see you do that. No, our world is addicted to these things, but God's grace puts to death any kind of smarmy arrogance, any disrespectful defiance. And God's grace allows us to respond in those moments with gentleness and respect. To respond with gentleness and respect in our day is becoming more and more countercultural. And so in our day, to, to your relationships, to the people who, who might see you respond that way, it is more refreshing than the other side of the pillow. It is like getting a, a cool drink in the middle of a Saharan marathon to see someone respond with gentleness, with charity, with love and respect. And so Peter tells us that we can do this. Or, or in context, he's showing us that we can do this when we live in light of the rest of the rope. When we show that we are living for someone greater. When our hope is not in the things of this world, but in the one who controls this world. That when we live like that, we'll have opportunity to speak and we'll have opportunity to do so with gentleness and respect. So three ways to respond to persecution before Christ, honoring him in our hearts, being prepared to make a defense and to do so with gentleness and respect. Now, finally, Peter wants to illustrate what he is saying and he brings up a particularly confusing illustration here. Let's talk about the persecuted's final vindication. Because Peter shifts into this uh, few lines about Jesus and Noah. And he's using them as an example of people who have been through persecution. But he does so, as you might have seen, uh, in a way that's a little bit confusing. Let's read what he says. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Makes sense so far. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's a little bit more confusing. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You know, Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, one of the most influential, smartest men in all of human history, he said about this, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. I was very encouraged to read that. 
But I think when we put it into context, having read just what we've read prior about how we can, can go through and endure suffering and actually respond to suffering with good gentleness, respect, we see actually a great message that's at the heart of the gospel. We hear first that Jesus suffered, that the righteous one suffered for the unrighteousness, that Jesus is the prototypical persecuted person because he was perfect, sinless, righteous, and yet he submitted himself to death, death for unrighteous people like you and me, so that he might reconcile us to God. And that is good news. Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God. You don't need decades of religious performance. You don't need years of uh, toil. You don't need to climb any ladders. You don't need to make yourself look well put together. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And when you have Jesus, you have all you need. His death in your place for your sin. And you can be forgiven and you can come to the Father forever. And what Peter is saying after that, and there's a few interpretations of this, and we hold these loosely, but I'll, I'll share mine. I think what Peter is saying is that he turns his attention to Noah and he says something that accords with what we heard earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, that, that actually Jesus was preaching through the prophets of the Old Testament. He's saying that in Noah's day, as Noah went about preaching, because later in 2 Peter, he tells us Noah was a herald of righteousness. As Noah was building his boat, he was also preaching. He was telling the people who were watching him in the desert, build a boat. Noah, what are you doing? He was telling them, God's judgment's coming. It's going to get wet. Rain is coming. Like, it, like a lot of rain is coming. And so you need to get right with God. You need, to, you need to turn to our Creator. You need to put your faith, your trust in Him. And God's patience, God was patiently waiting for these people to respond to Noah. But instead they scoffed at Him. Instead they persecuted Him. Instead, they ignored his preaching. Peter's telling us that actually it was through that preaching that Jesus was proclaiming to those people. And then Peter reminds us that it was Noah. Eight persons, only he and his family, who were brought safely through the water, who were saved from judgment through the boat on the water. And so Noah will have copped it. He was perhaps... There is no one who has lived a more countercultural life than him in the desert building a boat before rain and a flood would come. And so he was persecuted and yet he was vindicated at the end. God saved him. And in the same way, God has given us evidence of our vindication in the here and now in baptism. If you have been baptized, then you have had the objective offer of God's grace and promises held out to you. You have received the sign of your union with Christ by faith in His death and His resurrection. You've been saved through the waters, cleansed, not like getting cleansed from a physical way, not that baptism, there's something special in the water that that cleanses your sins by going in the water, rather cleansing of your conscience, the cleansing of your sin and your failure represented in baptism. And so baptism gives us a moment in the present where we can find assurance that we're going to be vindicated in the end, however we're treated in this life. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? 
shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8 says. And so Jesus' resurrection, Noah's salvation, your baptism, all of them are signs of God's vindication of his people. That whatever the pressure, whatever the persecution, he will never forsake us. And so this is why we can live in light of the rest of the rope. Because losing in this life, suffering in this life, being uncomfortable today, worst case, having your life, your little life, cut short a little more by a few decades, none of it compares to the vindication and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we will be experiencing with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And so preparing for persecution, sometimes we can see it as like we're subscribing to the victim mentality. But to prepare for persecution in in the biblical sense is to hold fast to the victor mentality. That we should, through gentleness and respect, through pouring our lives out with love and generosity, endure suffering. Because Christ has won. And we will be vindicated in Him because He has won for us. And so if you trust in Jesus uh, and you haven't yet been baptized, come join the family of the vindicated. Come and show the unity that you have with Jesus by faith through the waters of baptism. This is a good moment to consider that. And perhaps you're going you're to see a bit of a trailer for what you might expect uh, later on after this service. But we will have another opportunity at Easter. So do let us know if that is you. And so this confusing passage from Peter here is a little bit like the words of Jesus, who said, In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has won. And because Jesus has won, this passage starts to make some sense. What can man do to me? Who can be against us? Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So let the Bible's perspective on suffering become your perspective by living in light of the rest of the rope. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.